on June 23rd, last year, 12 boys in Thailand went exploring with their soccer coach. And it started as a birthday party, but the day ended with none returning home. They journeyed deep into a cave, almost two miles, and were trapped by rising water. Little food, no light, fleeting oxygen, and no way out. Media coverage was abundant. Navy SEALs prepared for dangerous rescues. National police and response teams worked tirelessly. Engineers pumped water out while calculating where and if they should drill. Villagers donated money. Food support came for the families. The U.S. Air Force, Britain, Belgium, Australia, Scandinavia, and others got involved One diver lost his life. Eighteen days later, all were rescued. The world made every effort to save them. Why? Because precious life was in the cave. Sadly, we don't find the same efforts in America when it comes to precious life in the womb. Tuesday marks 46 years since Roe v. Wade when America looked at a preborn child and stopped treating that child with dignity and rights. In 1973, our Supreme Court forced every state to give every woman the free access to terminate the life of their preborn child on demand. And the result? Legal protection for killing over 60 million babies, a number nearing the combined population of Texas and California. There's no question anymore over what an abortion is. Biologists and medical professionals who support abortion do so with full knowledge that abortion terminates human life. They just question the baby's personhood and rights. Even leading advocates for abortion are now, frankly, admitting the same. In 2008, Camille Paglia wrote, I have always, frankly, admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for, their, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. And yet, despite acknowledging the murder, she then justifies abortion on grounds that it protects a woman's right to abortion. So in the face of this blatant evil, we need guidance on how to respond. Science continues to prove that life begins at conception when there's formed a new, whole, living human organism that's not part of the mother and has its own DNA and blood type. But science can't tell us what to do about that. God's Word, however, does. God reveals what life is and how we must treat it. And my aim is to show you God's view of human life 
and the demand of love and what both imply for our decisions in life and in our interaction with others. In order to do this, I want to make four observations from Scripture and then tease out some of the, op, uh, some of the implications. And the first observation is this. God made all people in His image and gave them special dignity as His image bearers. God made all people in His image and gave them special dignity as His image bearers. According to Scripture, humans are not the result of a cosmic coincidence, but the result of a careful creator. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God created many things for his glory. Angels and seraphs. The sun and stars. Clouds and birds. Elephants and chinchillas. Whales and turtles. Rocks and trees. But only one creation was made in His image. Humans. Humans are the crowning work of God's creation. God made us to mirror His glory in a unique way. And as image bearers, we reflect His glorious character in our person and in our rule. Now, it's also true that sin greatly marred the image of God. In us, we, we don't mirror God's glory like we ought to. Uh, one translation of Romans 3.23 even says, All have sinned and lack the glory of God. But that doesn't mean the image of God is lost altogether. All people maintain this special dignity endowed by their Creator. That can be seen in Genesis 5.3. So, After the fall of man into sin, we find the image of God passed on to Adam's children. And then also in Genesis 9-6, we find the special dignity of man reasserted. God puts severe consequences in place for those who take human life. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Or James 3.9 also says that with our tongues we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So even after sin enters the world, God's image in mankind persists. Image bearers shouldn't be treated lightly. We, we, we shouldn't even degrade them with our words. Second observation. From the moment of conception, preborn children are moral and legal persons who have intrinsic value as God's image bearers. From the moment of conception, preborn children are moral and legal persons who have intrinsic value as God's image bearers. 
In Psalm 39, David, uh, Psalm 139, David describes his preborn state in ways that are fully personal. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was being made. You see, God didn't knit together some clumps of tissue that wasn't yet David or that would later become David. God knitted David together. Uh, Jesus' birth narrative is another great example. Uh, Elizabeth is 24 weeks pregnant with John the Baptist, and Mary visits Elizabeth, and and it says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. The baby. Luke then uses the same word of Jesus laying in the manger later in Luke chapter 2, verse 16. In other words, Passing through the birth canal doesn't change something that wasn't a baby into a baby. Luke calls both John in the womb and Jesus in the manger the baby. It's a baby with personal feelings who kicks for joy at Mary's voice. If anything, medical research on what babies can sense in the womb only confirms what the Bible already assumes. At 16 weeks, a baby discerns sounds. At 8 weeks old, a baby can suck his thumb and feel pain. But another text supporting a preborn child's personhood is Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. It says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, But there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This law presents two cases where a pregnant woman is accidentally hit during a scuffle. In the first, the woman gets hit and the injury causes premature labor, but no harm to mom or the child. And in that case, the father names a penalty and the man who caused the labor must pay the penalty uh, with the judge's approval. The point is that both the mother and the child are legal persons under the law's protection. But the second case goes further. It shows to what extent the law values, to what extent the law values both the mother and the preborn child. In the second case, there is harm done to either the mother or the preborn child. And in that case, several penalties uh, apply. The highest is life for life. If the guy in the scuffle accidentally killed the woman or her, per- or her preborn child, it's life for life. Again, the point is that God's law views both the mother and the preborn child as persons with legal value. And the law does what it can to protect them, even to the degree of life for life. Think about that. God established this life for life uh, consequence back in Genesis chapter 9. Verse 6, and the reason he gave for it was, for God made man in his own image. Exodus 21 is building on that moral framework and says the same applies to the child in the womb. 
In other words, alongside the woman, the preborn child has intrinsic value as God's image bearer. And therefore, we should do all we can to, present, to prevent accidental harm and especially prevent intentional harm, as, if, as in the case with abortion. And this leads to our third observation. Neighbor love demands diligent action to protect and promote the life of all God's image bearers. Neighbor love demands diligent action to promote, to protect and promote the life of all God's image bearers. In the law, we get a group of commands that reveal this principle very well. Uh, I won't say all of them. I'll mention a few today. But one is Exodus 21, verses 28 to 29. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. So what do we observe in this second scenario? The owner's negligence proves how little he values God's image bearer. And God doesn't tolerate it. Right? If the man valued human life, He would have acted to protect life. And so the command ends up teaching the the covenant people of God a much broader principle, which is do everything you can to protect life. Another is Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When you build a a new house and you make a parapet, uh, you shall make a parapet. For your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So think, think flat roof. And back then, people used the, the roof as like another room for storage or people coming over to sleep for the night. Maybe even some leisure. Well, a parapet surrounded the roof to keep people from falling off. Without it, the roof was hazardous to human life. Again, the law is teaching God's people to value the image bearer with their actions and not just their mouth. Right? Do everything you can to protect life. Plan it out in your blueprints and in your costs and in what you're doing with your home and so forth. Deuteronomy 19.5 also presents a situation where, you know, someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes the neighbor so that he dies. And the question that Israel has, of course, is what do we do when that happens? Well, the passage then goes on to show how that accidental killing differs from outright murder. Murder deserves capital punishment, where you kind of premeditated killing. But in the case of this accidental killing, you, you had cities of refuge. And the manslayer had to stay in that city until the death of the high priest. The point, though, is to protect life in a couple of ways. 
One was by providing refuge for the man who swung the axe. Right? There's still a penalty. He has to stay put in the city until the death of the high priest. But they'd also protect him from those who might be seeking swift vengeance. But the other way it protected life was by saying, Secure your axe head before you swing it. Right? I tell my kids, got a few of them playing with Legos, and somebody comes in and starts swinging a baseball bat. It's like, what are you doing? Like, put your neighbor radar on. What's going on? You have no concern for the others around you. Right? So, secure your axe. Stop swinging bats in the living room. However you want to say it. Be alert to how your actions will affect God's image bearers. Again and again, this is the attitude of the law toward God's image bearers. From conception to to natural death. Make every effort to protect and promote life because people are made in God's image. Basically, this is how the command to love your neighbor gets fleshed out in the law. It's just taking these very specific situations and, and saying, this is what neighbor love looks like. In this situation with your roof, in this situation with your ox, in this situation over here with your axe. It's what it looks like. So the law isn't merely about avoiding murder. Its true intent promotes diligent care for God's image bearers that that plans and makes decisions and ensures environments for life to flourish. And that's even truer under the new covenant in Christ. Observation number four. Christ fulfills the law and creates a people who fulfill the law through neighbor love. Christ fulfills the law and creates a people who fulfill the law through neighbor love. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He came to bring the law to its truest intent, right? To become for us all that the law pointed toward. Think of Jesus' teaching on on murder, for example. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So you got these religious leaders and they boasted that, you know, they kept the law by simply avoiding badness. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't sleep with anybody. I didn't steal anything from anybody. In this case, I didn't murder anybody. So I must be righteous. And Jesus is saying, not so fast. Let me show you how badly you've misunderstood God's law. Is what Jesus tells him. Let me show you how unrighteous you truly are. Are. If they understood the law's truest intent, they would have also eliminated every cause that can lead to murder 
like anger in their hearts. They should have pursued reconciliation and peace as well, he goes on to say. So in terms of the sanctity of life then, Jesus ups the ante for his kingdom citizens. Not only will his citizens not murder, they will repent of any cause in the heart that could lead to the loss of life. And then they will actively seek ways to help life and relationships to flourish. See, it's not a matter of choosing which Old Testament laws apply to us and which ones don't. But how those laws are fulfilled and brought to their truest intent in Christ and our union with Christ. Yes, the apostles teach us to use the law for prophecy. It's prophecy in that it points us to Jesus, our true sacrifice and our true Passover and our superior priest and king and so on. But the law is also used for wisdom by the apostles. God promised a new people who who would internalize His law such that it shaped their moral outlook and their ethics. That's why you get things like, you know, you're saying, hey, you ought to to pay the guys who are preaching the word to you. Why? Because the law says, you know, don't, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. You get these... Like this is a very specific situation in the church and he's reaching back to a law to gain wisdom and it determines the ethics on how the church ought to act. And so you get the same types of things uh, throughout the New Testament with the apostles reaching back to the law and using it for wisdom and ethics. God promised a new people who internalize his law such that it shaped their moral outlook and their ethics. So with respect to the sanctity of life and the demand of love, God's law couldn't be clearer. His love not only applies to the specifics of our lives, it also demands diligent action in those specifics to protect and promote the life of all God's image bearers. In the New Testament church, you know, we, we, uh, we may not see abortion. The first thing we see from abortion in the church is the Didache, which, you know, second century, but... But uh, from, from the church, you don't find that. But you see a lot of other things, like you know, we see the lo- this, this love playing out in how they meet each other's needs and how they give themselves to the poor and how husbands nurture and cherish their wives and how families provide for widows. And if they can't, the church should. And how James would tell them to visit orphans and widows in their distress. About that command, by the way, James one twenty seven. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. Uh, John Piper once said this. If God wants us to care about the orphan whose life is endangered because his parents are dead, he would want all the more that we care about the child whose life is endangered because his parents choose to make him dead. Visit orphans and widows in their distress. So what now? You know, if, we, if we're the people who by grace, through the new birth, fulfill the law through neighbor love, what now? 
If neighbor love demands diligent action to protect and promote the life of all God's image bearers, from the point of conception all the way to natural death, what should we do? Well, for starters, we should repent from all that's contrary to neighbor love in our hearts and turn to Christ for forgiveness. Um, Perhaps you're a woman who's had an abortion. Maybe you're a father or husband or a boyfriend who encouraged an abortion. Maybe you're a doctor who performed an abortion. Or maybe you're a Christian who neglects to do anything about abortion. A situation rose in your family. Someone brought up the subject at work. You learned of a pregnant neighbor wanting an abortion, and instead of speaking for life, you remained silent. You did nothing. Or maybe you're just an angry, angry, verbally abusive person toward fellow image bearers. And what's in your heart, according to Jesus, is really the same sin we see playing out in the abortion industry. Who wants control and who want their convenience unhindered. And they will kill in order to keep it. Don't point the finger too quickly if you're still yelling at your kids. When we realize the true nature of our sin and our depravity and how it dehumanizes us and it dehumanizes others, it's right for shame and guilt to consume our conscience. We've broken God's law and we've failed to love. But here's the good news. The Bible also tells story of God's grace toward murderers and toward negligent people and toward the angry. David took his best man's wife and then conspired to have Uriah killed to conceal his adultery. And God came to David in mercy and exposed David. And in Psalm 51, we find David confessing his sin and crying for the Lord's forgiveness. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David's humble cry can become your own. And God will not despise that humble and contrite heart. Paul also breathed murder against the church, against the Lord Himself, according to Acts 9. And yet this same Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the only kind of people who came to save. Sinners. Of whom, he says, I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. The good news is that God forgives sinners through the cross. 
And he transforms them into his messengers who bring other people the good news of the cross. He holds out mercy for you in Christ today. He holds out cleansing, Hebrews says, for your guilty conscience. Come to Him and trust in His saving grace. And you will be His. And He will cleanse you. And He will make you His messenger. Second, and I'm just taking this from Ephesians 5.11, these next two points. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. And that means the obvious, right? Like choosing not to end the life of anybody, but not to end the life of a preborn child. No matter if that child is unwanted or has a disability or the result of rape, it's still a child made in the image of God. But diligent action will also mean not participating in the less obvious, like not using birth control methods that are abortifacient. Specifically, that includes IUDs, the morning-after pill, the mini-pill. These create unstable environments for life to, flir- for life to flourish after conception. More popular are combination oral contraceptives known as the pill. And they offer more to prevent conception, true, but there's still a small risk that that conception could occur and then the life can't flourish due to the drug also thinning the endometrial wall. And yes, there are some uncertainties that exist with the pill. But love strives to provide the safest environment for life to flourish and not even potentially die. Let's say I'm out in the woods hunting with a friend. And we go our separate ways in our separate spots. And and then as I'm sitting there, I see something moving in the bushes up ahead. But I, I don't quite know what it is. It's likely not my friend, because... He went that way, but I see the bushes moving this way. It's likely not my friend, but I'm uncertain. I'm uncertain. What do I do? Shoot first and ask questions later? No. I err on the side of life. Right? The sanctity of life means I don't act until I'm certain it's not my friend or anybody else for that matter. And this is how we ought to treat this whole discussion. Love strives to provide the safest environment for life to flourish and not even potentially die. And that also means avoiding artificial reproductive technologies that threaten life, like IVF in which it's common practice to fertilize several eggs and then freeze these children for an indefinite amount of time only to be used or discarded if the parents opt to forego having any more children. Andreas Kostenberger adds, such practices are both inherently disrespectful 
and use these children merely as a means to the parents' chosen goals and must therefore be discarded as inappropriate avenues for Christians to pursue. But there's also a deeper attitude we should want nothing to do with. And it's the same attitude that drives genocide and racism and road rage and verbal abuse. And that attitude goes something like this. Dehumanize anybody who stands in the way of my plans, my wants, and my comforts. Dehumanize anybody who stands in the way of my plans, my wants, and my comforts. And that is satanic. Beloved, take no part in these unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, we must expose them. That's the second way. That's, I mean, that's a third way to act. Expose the darkness. Expose these unfruitful works. Expose the horrors of abortion clinics. Expose the mass killing of babies and don't cloak it with labels like reproduction, reproductive health and pro-choice. Show them the arms and the legs in the trays. Just like the soldiers marched Germans through the concentration camps after the war was over. So they could see what they had done and what they had supported. Expose how women's rights are valuable, but they're not absolute. And besides that, if the child is a person, the child has rights. We belong to a creator, and we must steward all that he gives us inside and outside the womb according to his sovereign plan and wisdom. Expose the false logic. We had a class last year on uh, philosophy, and they talked about logic. So you have a little, some tools under your belt now, those of you who went to that class. Expose the false logic within the pro-choice movement. And if you need some books to help you do that, let me re- recommend two that are in the library back here. Thank you, Brian. One is by... Scott Klusendorf called The Case for Life, Equipping Christians in the, to Engage the Culture. Scott Klusendorf, The Case for Life. And the other is by R.C. Sproul called Abortion, A Rational Look at an Emotional Issue. There are others, but those are uh, two that I'd recommend to you. There are, meaning there are others in Brian's library like there's, there's a book on how to care for, the, for, for women who've, who've gone through an abortion and, and a host of other topics. But those two will help you expose the false logic within the pro-choice movement. The, these brothers, uh, both Klusendorf and Sproul, answer objections related to moral relativism, women's rights, rape, incest, fears of back-alley abortions and religious tyranny, and, and so on. Speaking of books, educate yourself and others about life. Educate yourself and others about life. Read up on on this uh, subject. 
Uh, go to websites like ab- abort73.com. Ab- ab- it's the word abort73. Dot com and they've got some great articles on there by different people as well as some videos that you can watch if you don't feel like reading. So watch these videos, get educated on the subject. Um, some of you are good writers and, and, and research things well. Write things up. A lot. I don't, I don't have Facebook, but a lot of you do. Research and write good articles. Good articles that don't slander other people and misrepresent other people, but good articles that are rooted in good research and sound logic and thinking. And, and write on, the, on this subject to educate others. Maybe you're uh, into film or photography. There are ways you could use those skills really to, 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 to show the beauty of life. And I don't just mean life in the womb, I mean life, period, uh, with, with, with people. Consider the example of our dig servants. Um, I just want to take this as a moment to say, dig servants, you, you are shining lights in our congregation for, for the way that you invest in our children, in the lives of our children every week. You take them under, the, under your wing or you're holding them uh, in, in the infant room. And, and that is teaching something not only to us as a body, it's teaching something to the children themselves. That they are valuable and life is to be valued. And that's instrumental. So thank you for your, for your work and, and, and your efforts and your studies. So... Bill this morning holding their newborn, feeding, uh, feeding, uh, and feeding her with a bottle, and and then all, all the other kids just kind of getting ready for Sunday Sunday school class. It was just an amazing portrait of this this brother valuing life and, and working hard to to care for for others in God's image. Lastly, rescue others from peril. Rescue others from peril. Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you hear someone want, of, of someone wanting an abortion, speak up. Ask, ask the mother to wait. Take her to coffee. Invite her to your home. Talk it through and show her why life is precious. Support crisis pregnancy centers that are pro-life. Support them with finances and support them with services. You know, as a church, we support the Pregnancy Help Center uh, off of Camp, Camp Bowie. Uh, we set aside funds to support them. And some of you give your time uh, to assist with the sonograms or counseling uh, other, other women or cleaning uh, or making blankets for, for the, the children. And that's awesome. You're, you're doing well. Rescue the mothers, too. Right? Love will also act to, pro- to protect the women uh, wrestling with whether to have an abortion. You know, some, some were raped, and raising a child uh, alone is terrifying. Some made poor life choices, and they're not mature. 
Some are just callous about life since mom or dad never treated them like a person either. Some have only known poverty and they fear the costs of what it, what it takes. Whatever the story, they're looking for, for hope and help and the church should be the first to offer them both. The church should provide a context for healing and restoration for victims of rape. The church can also provide help for those who are pregnant and facing motherhood. We should even be ready to adopt their children when they come for help. Like when we, when we ask, hey, have you ever considered abortion? I mean, sorry, not abortion. Have you ever considered adoption? It totally undermines this entire sermon. Have you ever considered abortion? Well, don't. (laughs) Have you ever considered adoption? Right? There should be a a sense in which we can stand behind that question. Have you ever considered adoption? I'm here for you. And if I can't, I'm going to find someone who is and who can be. Uh, Some of you may not be able to adopt, and that's okay. But others can, and they they still need your help in doing so. Mike and Sherry Branch have agreed to share share with us a little bit about their experience uh, with the foster care and and how the Lord used them in adoption. Uh, They'll be sharing shortly after the service. So if if you didn't bring your lunch already today, go get some and and join us. I, I, I invite all of you to be there. Uh, to learn more from them and, and bring your questions and your fears with you and, and let them equip you uh, in relation to adoption. None of us can do it all, and I hope you don't hear me saying that you should, that, that each one of you should do everything. But all of us can do something. We can make a contribution somehow, even if that contribution goes unseen, like, like praying regularly for the Lord's justice to prevail for the unborn or just sitting at home and holding your son or daughter and reading to them, or educating your, 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 and educating your children about life, or, or talking to kids at school. Right? Uh, Michael was um, sharing with me this week uh, he had a, that he had a, one of his students come up to him at school and ask him about abortion and, and some of the objections that, that others were having to the, to the pro-life side. Right? Michael wasn't doing anything extra. He was just doing his job, serving as a teacher at a, at a local school, and then being faithful to Christ in the opportunities given him. And that, too, is helping to rescue. The point is that true Christianity does something. Right? Avoidance didn't abolish the slave trade. The relentless pursuit of William Wilberforce-type Christians did. True Christianity acts to protect and to promote the life of all God's image bearers. We make every effort to preserve life and ensure environments where life can flourish. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.